Don't you think the law is stupid? The law doesn't Serious responsibility. Come on, Show the man your power, big. Blast him! Give him some of that tone! Showtime! Don't you smile, won't be kissed, listen. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. 
ladies and gentlemen of the radio audience. Very auspicious beginning. Sure, it's a talk show. You know, people phone in and make a beef. Oh, what about? Whatever happens to bug you, that's what you talk about. Sometimes he agrees with the caller, other times he sets him straight. Hey, Nice to see you. Have a nice day. Why are they doing this? Why are they doing this? They said when you got here, the whole thing started. Who are you? What are you? Where did you come from? I think you're the cause of all this. I think you're evil. Evil! You are not sleepy or tired, ever. I'm a bunch of pussies wearing me! Again. Looks like those clouds in Congress did it again. What a bunch of clouds. <laughs> It's me, Chris T. Back here on the Hound NYC every Sunday. Hound Howls at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, followed by Crash and the Party. Brand new one, number 102, this Sunday. Don't miss it. Otherwise, on the HoundNYC.com, you got Hound Shows. You got aerial view and you got crashing the party. That's the triumvirate is the word I'm looking for. It's a power trio. But who knows? It may expand in the future. We may add a fourth member of the team. The Hound NYC com team. If you don't know who I am, if you've never heard this show before, I'll give you a, what the English call a primer. How about the English, by the way? Jesus, what they're going through over there. Between the queen dying, provided 70 years of stability, now you got that mope, Prince Charles in there. What a mope. And then Liz Truss comes along. Six weeks as prime minister. Shortest run ever. For a prime minister. She floated all of these Reagan-esque, Thatcher-esque tax cuts, supposedly. And of course for the wealthy. Because they still haven't let go of this trickle-down bullshit. You know, if we free up capital, if we let them keep more of their money, they're going to expand their businesses and they're going to create jobs. They're going to put people to work. And those people are going to pay taxes and that's going to make up for the tax cut. Even more so. This is a great idea. Supply side economics, as it was called. Voodoo economics, as George H.W. Bush called it. And Liz Truss and her finance minister, 
Well, he's already gone. She, the other day, they gave her the boot. She uh, she stepped down because she could not get the support any longer. <laughs> Poor Liz Truss. <laughs> I mean, is six weeks even enough time to get an official portrait? Where, where would they hang that? 10 Downing Street? I don't know. The world is a mess. It's just a mess. If you haven't been paying attention, it's screwy, and every day it gets screwier. And you hope and you pray and you wait for it to just level out just a bit. Let's just let things level out. And then it doesn't happen. Between the war and the Ukraine... uh, Did I make the fundamental error... Saying the Ukraine. Jesus. Between the war in Ukraine. That is, uh, of course, being ratcheted up now with the involvement of Iran. Iran providing weaponry, drones, training on the drones. Looks like the CIA is going to soon be taking out some Iranian drones. I hope they could do it with just a few lines of code, by the way. And not have to actually physically blow them out of the air. That would be cool. Wouldn't that be something? Where was I? Oh, yeah. The uh, Ukraine war. What's going on in Ukraine? Between that and the pandemic and uh, the random crime. Can't ride the subway. Can't get on a bus. In a major city. Without something going down. Terrible. It's just quite a time to live through. I'm leaving a whole bunch of stuff off the list. And including some stuff. I'm going to talk about this evening. With our guest. Constitutional scholar and professor of law. Ken Katkin. Who's at the Salmon P. Chase College of Law. Northern Kentucky University. He will return to Aerial View. In just a few talk all about the current threats to the Constitution and the current session of the Supreme Court. What's on the docket? Ken Katkin, Court's Disaster, tonight on Aerial View. Ken also hosts the radio show Trash Flow Radio, heard on WAIF 88.3 FM in the Cincinnati area, Saturdays 3 to 5 p.m. and online at WAIFradio.org. That's where you can hear Trash Flow Radio. Ken's been on the show a number of times. I enjoy talking about the Constitution. It is the law of the land. The Supreme Court enforces the law of the land. And uh, the two of them are going screwy. There's There's a very serious threat underway to the Constitution. It's been underway for years now. Uh, There's this thing out there, if you haven't heard of it, and maybe you have, uh, called ALEC for short, A-L-E-C. And uh, what does that stand for, you're wondering? The American Legislative Exchange Council, America's, quote, largest nonpartisan voluntary membership organization of state legislators dedicated 
to the principles of limited government, free markets, and federalism, which is a lot of bullshit. A lot of uh, way. It's a it's a very long winded way to say. We don't like that some people are being helped by the government and we want it to stop. These are the assholes that have been looking to dismantle uh, the social safety net since FDR instituted it around the time of the Great Depression. Pretty good reason to bring about a social safety net. Social security, of course. Uh, Anything like Medicare, Medicaid, unemployment insurance, you know. What they see is redistribution of wealth. What they really are is just greedy fucks. And they never learned how to stop being greedy fucks, and they can't stand it. They think people are getting something they don't. I, I read a very interesting article today, article today about the what's going on in uh, the rural parts of this country. Paul Krugman. You might know him, economist, writes for the New York Times. And a very good distillation of, of what goes on in the rural areas of this country where they, they, they resent the government and the elites and whoever else they want to label because they think they're overlooked. They think they're not getting their fair share or they're not getting what they should be getting or somehow they're just... And he very methodically lays out how these rural areas get the bulk of the money that the states submit to the federal government in the form of taxes. And living here in New Jersey, of course, New Jersey is one of these states that always sends way more money to the federal government than it ever gets back. It doesn't mostly get anything back. It only got something back because of the the coronavirus. That's about it. But to hear all these people in these places where it's just completely red, there isn't a Democrat, you can't even admit to having voted for Joe Biden, they'll just shun you, you'll be, you won't be welcome to live there anymore. And they're getting all this money in the form of aid, all different kinds, including, what was it, $46 billion that, Joe, that uh, Donald J. Trump gave to farmers a couple of years ago? Meanwhile, there's maybe two million farms left in this country. So, I mean, how many million is that per farm? I mean, how much, how much money did he give the farmers, for God's sakes? And they're bitching about student loan forgiveness. It makes me fucking insane. Let's call Ken Katkin. By the way, he's going to be in his car driving to Chicago. Hey, Chris, can you hear me okay? I can. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I was just trying to listen to you on the on the stream, but like I I think the stream gets a couple minutes behind, so I heard most of what you were saying, mm. but then the phone rang. But uh, yeah, but I'm, okay. I'm ready to talk if you can hear me. Yeah. Well, I was just doing a little bit of a build up to just how crazy things are right now in the world. Um, but let me ask you this question first: since you're headed to Chicago, did you grab the first thing smoking? Did I did I? <laughs> Did I grab the first thing smoking? Yeah. You know, from the Howlin' Wolf song. You get grab the first thing smoking and get to Chicago. It's what well, it, it could it might be a train, it might be a plane. You know, I'm just asking. Because you're headed to Chicago. I, I, I drove my own car and it, it's a hybrid car, so it doesn't even emit very doesn't much even smoke. smoke. There goes that question. Oh well. It's a gas hybrid, so it, it smokes a little bit. But yeah, so I grabbed, and it was the first 
thing, that's for sure. Okay, and dare we ask why you're going to Chicago? Are you going for, for uh, business or pleasure? It's for pleasure. Okay. Um, I can tell you why. Uh, it, it somewhat very loosely relates to business of decades ago, but not any current business. But um, as you know, when, when you met me decades ago, and in fact when we, we drove out to Chicago in a, in a caravan together, um, at the time you first met me, I was working at Homestead Records in New York City. And one of the um, things that I did at Homestead Records was I, I would license uh, bands, I would license records from Flying Nun Records in New Zealand and release them in the United States. And one of those bands was The Chills. And uh, they very rarely come to the United States, but they are still around. And they're playing in Chicago tonight. So I figured I better go up there and say hello. What do you know? Okay, so is it just the chills on the bill, or is there uh, open airs or opening act? Uh, there is an opening act, but I don't, I don't know, I don't know who they are. So, uh, yeah, it gives me a little more time to get there. That's how I look at it. All right. Well, you can miss the opening act. What, what's the venue? It's called Sleeping Village, and it's in, uh, in on Belmont Avenue in Chicago. Wow. Okay. So that's how long of a drive is that for you from where you are? To uh, Chicago. You know, I was kind of me. I was kind of meandering today because, like, when I'm just by myself and nobody's saying keep it moving, like I stop all the time. So for me, it turned out to be probably five and a half hours, and I'm I'm still driving there, but I'm actually in the city of Chicago by now. But I'm just still on the highway. All right. But, um, but yeah, it could, it could be done in four and a half or five hours. But it's uh, it took me about five and a half. By the way, the opener is a band called Unwed Sailor. If you care. Do you, do you know anything about them? Um, no, just that that's a kind of wonky name for a band, Unwed Sailor. I, I wouldn't name my band that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm with you there. You know, it's just I, where that came from, I don't know. Uh, it's mostly an instrumental band, by the way. So there's always that. You can talk over it while you're having your drinks at the bar, <laughs> it sounds like. Chicago's kind of... Yeah, Chicago's kind of like the city of like post-rock uh, instrumental bands, so I guess they have ones I don't even know about. Yeah, Unwed Sailor. By the way, they, they formed in 1988. They've been around a while, man. They. Oh, oh I'm so sorry. Children have been, children have been around longer. <laughs> Nin, 19, 1998. I, let, me, let me correct myself. 1998. Oh. Uh, somebody named Jonathan Ford. This is way too much detail. They're, they're from Seattle, yeah. by the way. I don't think they are from Chicago. But oh. you'll find out tonight well, when you miss it. I'll find them. out. Yeah, I'll, I'll, get there on, I'll get there on time to hear, hear them, so I will, I will find out. Yeah. Uh, what, that's not what we're here to talk about. I'm not here to talk about indie rock as much as I would like to. Maybe we'll do that some other show. Um, yeah. But uh, something came up recently. I, I contacted you about it, and it was this case before the Supreme Court about uh, Andy Warhol Foundation versus um, Lynn Goldsmith. And Lynn Goldsmith, as you might know, famous rock photographer. She put out a book a few years ago of all of her photographs. But uh, at some point, Andy Warhol took a copyrighted 1981 photo Lynn Goldsmith took of Prince, the musician, and he turned it into one of his standard sort of silkscreen works that he's done of everybody from Elizabeth Taylor to you name them. Um and Lynn Goldsmith said, hey, hang on a second. That's a copyrighted photograph. And what happened is, in this particular case, um, the uh, district court granted 
summary judgment for the foundation. They said that Warhol had significantly or sufficiently transformed the original photograph and gave it new meaning and message, and thereby it was protected. And the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit disagreed. They said basically the artwork of Warhol still remained recognizably derived, as they put it, from the original. Warhol failed to transform it, and therefore it was not fair use. This was the question before the court uh, argued October 12th, so not that long ago. We don't have a, a judgment yet. But had you heard about this case, and did you under... I mean, to me, Ken Katkin, constitutional scholar and professor of law, Ken Katkin, this has very far-ranging... Uh, this, this, this could be a potentially far-ranging decision. The implications of it could go into every sort of copyright. Yeah, I mean, this issue of what's sometimes called transformative use comes up a lot in copyright law. This won't even be the first time the Supreme Court decide a case like this that involves uh, something from pop culture or from, 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 from uh, um, you know, like you might remember uh, decades ago, but you were already paying attention at the time. You remember when Two Live Crew did a, a parody of uh, Roy Orbison's Pretty Woman? Yes. Yes. Yes, that, went to, that, went to, that, that one went to the U.S. Supreme Court, too. And uh, I feel that's a very similar case. And uh, two live crew were able to win that case, but I, I can let me back up a little bit, I guess, by explaining the, the legal terms that, that apply here. So, if if, if somebody uh, creates a, an original work of creativity and and fixes that work in a tangible medium, so if you're talking about music, you know, if they record it, um, or if you're talking about you know visual arts, just if you know if there's an object, um, then that becomes copyrightable. Now, once a work is copyrighted, once, once an original work is fixed in a tangible medium and copyrighted, um, the, the copyright holder uh, has the right not only to authorize copies of it, but also, also to authorize derivative works that are derived from it. Um, so if you think of something like a, a, a book, right, if, if an author writes a book and copyrights it, then a couple of things they can do with that copyright, they can... They can uh, assign it to a book publisher who will print many copies of the book. That's a literal copy of the book. And so, you know, publishers that have not purchased the copyright from the author cannot do that, but uh, a, a book company that has purchased the copyright from the author uh, can do that. But then besides literal copies like that, there's this concept of derivative works. So a book, someone might want to make a movie of the book. Now, the movie of the book is not going to be identical to the book. It's going to have visuals, which the book doesn't have. It's not going to have every word that was in the book. It may have some words that weren't in the book. So it's not a literal copy, but if it's based on the book, then that would commonly be considered a derivative work. And derivative, the, the right to license derivative works is part of the copyright holder's right. So nobody's allowed to make a derivative work from a copyright. No one's allowed to make a movie of a book unless they license that from the copyright holder. Um, but the limit on that concept, so the, if, to, if you go beyond a derivative work, the next kind of thing would be called a transformative work. And a transformative work would be something that does use some part of the copyrighted work, but in a, in a way that would be considered a fair use. And maybe to give examples that are a little bit easy before we move into the harder ones, 
Well, let's say you're writing a, a, a book review. You're writing a review about a book or you're writing a review about a movie. And as part of your review, you actually quote a few lines from the book or from the movie. Well, so the, the lines that you would be quoting would, would be copyrighted. They'd be part of the copyrighted work. But the, the, the book review or the movie review is such a completely different product than the book or the movie that that, that would be considered a fair use. So you don't, you don't need to get the permission of the publisher to quote from a, a book or a movie if you write a review of the book or a movie. So, so commenting on somebody else's work you know, in your own original um, commentary um, is, is a fair use, even if you, you quote some, some bits of, of the work. Okay. Um, I think I got it. I think I got it. You got that. It gets a little more complex when you're, let's say you're a playwright and you decide to do a modern take on um, Two Gentlemen of Verona or whatever. And, And it's, but you've changed the characters around, you've changed the genders, you've added music. You Would that be considered transformative at that point? Would there, I would... Not that there's still yeah. copyrights on Shakespeare. I have no idea. Right. Is, by the way. No, uh, it's not. In fact, one interesting thing about Shakespeare, just to digress a second, there never was. Right. Shakespeare's entire career was, was before there was such a thing as copyright law. Wow. So the, uh, they the must have ripped statute, him off yeah. constantly. Hmm. Yeah. Well, the, uh, the, the, statute, the, yeah, the statute of Anne, which was the first British copyright law, was passed about half a century after Shakespeare wrote, his, wrote The Tempest, which was his, his last play. So he never had the benefit of copyright. He was kind of ripped off a lot. And he, but he was really working in a different model. Um, that's another thing we could talk about is, you know, one thing about the copyright system, I think in America, you know, a lot of authors and creators and musicians kind of intuitively like the copyright system because they think, well, that's the way I can control my work and maybe make some money off it. But I would say it's not necessarily the most optimal system because it's a, it's a real winner-takes-all system. Right? Most stuff that gets copyrighted does not actually get monetized very well. It's not a lot of money to be made there. Whereas you know, Shakespeare, you know, the way he made a living was not by trying to monetize his copyrights, but just by being actually paid a salary to be a playwright. And you know, I, I think it, it is certainly arguable that if we had government sponsorship of, of lots of um, uh, creative occupations and creative endeavors, that, that that might be a better path to actually properly supporting uh, artists and creative people uh, than worrying so much about copyright. What, because copyright well, really, really only works for the, the big winners. I don't know if there's going to be another Works Progress Administration and we're going to start employing creative people, artists, playwrights, etc. I mean, look, they're trying to dismantle just about everything they can of the new deal. And I don't think we're going to see a WPA anytime soon. It would be great. By the way, there's got to be money in that inflation reduction act or whatever the hell they renamed the build back better bill for something creative. One would hope so. I mean, there's a hell of a lot of money in there, but you know, we're facing down the barrel of these midterms and now we're being told based on a poll of 792 people that it doesn't look that great for the uh, demon rats as uh we like to be called. Call us demon rats. Yeah. I'm trying to reclaim yeah. that. I'm trying to... Maybe we should use that yeah. word ourselves. Take the power out of it. Like, very successfully, they did with the N-word. You know, they they reclaimed the word and took the power out of it, and now it has no power any longer. So maybe we should start calling ourselves demon rats. I have no idea. But 
So I think what I uh, to go back to the two live crew example, yeah. Ken Katkin is basically the court yeah. agreed that the use was transformative enough that Roy Orbison's estate wasn't owed anything. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think there's several different ways a, a court could reach a, a conclusion like that. And um, I think in this case, the Supreme Court may choose one or the other. But I'll talk about, I mean, one, one thing that courts can do is kind of present these questions to juries and just ask juries of ordinary people, you know, what do you think? Like, do you think this is just uh, a ripoff of the underlying work or do you think it's uh, a, a original? And it's really just making a reference to the underlying work. Um, and so, so, so that, that could be presented as a jury question. One difficulty with doing it that way is, you know, you, there's really no predictability about how these cases are going to come out if you think of it as a jury question. Like, it's really something where it would be almost impossible to, for, for, for lawyers to advise clients about, you know, whether this work would be considered transformative or whether it would be considered derivative if you're ultimately going to say, well, if it gets litigated, it's going to come down to what a jury's going to think, and that, that's basically going to be a throw of the dice or, or be about the quality of the trial lawyers and how good they are with juries or something. So, you know, another another way that courts could do this is they, they could try to define a test for, for judges to apply to, to figure out, you know, what, what is it about a work that makes it um, uh, transformative, and they, they might want to use some kind of our, our artistic criteria for that. Or I think actually the simplest way to do it and the, the most objective way to do it would be to not try to use artistic criteria to make that judgment call, but to use purely financial criteria, which I think you could you could judge more objectively. So in the Warhol case, for instance, you know where I guess this this old Warhol um, uh, silk screen was um, you know recently republished and a bunch of money was paid for it, and, and that's and that's what led to this lawsuit. Um, you could ask the question, well, why did, why, did the, why did Vanity Fair or whatever it was pay all this money to put this image on the cover? Did they do it because it was a cool-looking image, or did they do it because it was a Warhol? And uh, my view would be that, you know, probably the evidence would show they did it because it was a Warhol, and, and, and that they, they wouldn't have done it if it wasn't a Warhol. And so, so looking at it that way, I would say that it should be considered a transformative work. If the economic value comes from the transformative use rather than from the um, original uh, work that was modified, um, then, then I think that that provides a, a basis, you know, in what's already a winner-takes-all system um, for just doing something that's kind of consistent with that winner-takes-all system. Interesting, because I listened to the oral arguments, and it was too close to tell, really, which way this might go. To my mind... Uh, absent the Lynn Goldsmith photograph, I mean, maybe this isn't the correct criteria. There is no Warhol artwork. But also, what if some other artist, lesser known than Andy Warhol, had uh, done something with this work of art, uh, with this photograph? Um, are we left saying to ourselves it's not a Warhol? I mean, uh, do we then have to judge how much that artist transformed the thing? And maybe if that artist isn't earning any money from their art or not, they're not earning Andy Warhol foundation levels of income from their art. Does that not rise to the level of transformative? Is it merely because it's Andy Warhol? And I, I I feel like it's just such a, um, 
this is a tough one. It's a really tough one because yeah. you don't right. want to discourage yeah, no, artists from right. you know mixing uh, different things into their art, and whether that means uh, other artwork and thereby commenting on it. Uh, but at the same time, Lynn Goldsmith should somehow be reimbursed. I mean, I I feel like even if they paid, and by they I mean Vanity Fair paid apparently the fee for the Lynn Goldsmith photograph, right? And then gave it to Andy Warhol. Um, I believe that's how it happened. She hasn't been compensated nearly enough as far as I'm concerned. Really what they should have done is offered her some cut of the damn proceeds. But, yeah, you know, you know how those things work. Yeah, you know, I, I, I see I see that argument. I'm not 100% sure I'm on board with it because think about, you know, somebody like an artist's model. Like, say some somebody gets paid to, to stand up and, and model and the artist paints the uh, painting, you know, somewhat based on painting the, the model. Um, would, you, would you sort of apply that same analysis and say, well, if that painting becomes really popular and keeps having revenue streams over time... Oh, this is good, because now I feel like I'm in court arguing with you, because I would yeah, say to yeah, that, yeah, yeah. a model is not a photographer. I mean, one, you know, what does it take to really be a model? Maybe you have to be fit. I don't know how much training it takes to be a model or how much experience or how much time you have to be to put in to rise to the level of a Lynn Goldsmith. I mean, she's a very well-known photographer. She's a professional. A model could be any, you know, uh, second-year college student who needs a few extra <laughs> bucks. It, you know, it, it, it really, it, I mean, what it could potentially do to the world of photography is I'm going to stand back and see, but... You know, it it could be a big deal in in terms of uh, how uh, artwork is now utilized in a secondary way. I don't know how else to put it, but well, go ahead. Yeah, but models are professionals. Models are professionals too, and 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 they do get paid for the sitting sessions. And Lynn Goldsmith did get paid for the the use of the photograph. And you know, I guess at that time she was a kind of you know professional, but a, a minor professional and. You know, a more major professional, in fact, would not have licensed the use of that photograph without including clauses in it about future revenue streams. And those things could always be done through agreement, through the licensing agreement. I was just going to say but that. Maybe the place to solve this would have been in whatever agreement Vanity Fair agreed to, signed, when they paid the fee for the photograph. And maybe that agreement left out the idea. Could you write into that agreement? That any uh, usage, whether transformative or not, you still have to come and talk to us about that? Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, that could certainly be written into any licensing agreement. So when when the photographer licensed to Warhol the, the, the right to base his silkscreen on her photo, um, he could have she could have written into that contract that whether he makes derivative or transformative uses in the future, he's got to compensator again and there could have been a formula for that now that wouldn't apply to you know if someone else did it you, you could always have you know if you don't have a contract between the parties like with two live crew and roy orbison they never had a contract between each other and two live crew just you know went ahead and figured they were making a transformative work and it ended up that the court uh, agreed with them so contracts can't solve all of these problems but contracts can solve the problem in cases like the warhol case where there is actually already privity between the parties, where the parties are already making a deal with each other, 
um, then that kind of stuff can be included up front. And that somehow and would be unconstitutional to do that? I mean, if the Supreme Court is saying essentially this is a form of free speech, you could still make people pay for that free speech? You could. Actually, in, in parts of the um, Hollywood industry, that kind of thing is common. So there's these, there's these people in Hollywood that they call, I guess, idea man or, or pitch man, and they, they come up with ideas for a series or for a movie or something like that, but they don't write a script. And those kinds of ideas are actually not copyrightable because it's only um, expression, you know, or particular words like a script that could be copyrightable, but a, an idea is not copyrightable. And so the way that those people have to make their living, giving that they're they're kind of working in the shadow of copyright law and not really able to copyright ideas uh, is they they sign these non-disclosure agreements before they'll talk to a Hollywood producer. And the non-disclosure agreement says, I'll come in and talk to you. And then every single thing that we talk about, you can never utter a word of it to anyone else and you can never rely on any of it unless you come back and pay me. Um, so it is actually possible through contracts to protect forms of expression that are not themselves copyrightable. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, there you go, kids. Does that answer all your questions? This is Aerial View on the HoundNYC.com. I'm Chris T. Ken Katkin is my guest, currently driving to Chicago to see the chills. And uh, maybe you have tickets as well. If you see him there at Sleeping Village, buy him a drink. What do you say? And uh, we're talking about the current Supreme Court docket. Uh, that was a case recently heard August, uh, August, October 12th, uh, Lynn Goldsmith versus the Andy Warhol Foundation. And the oral arguments are available online. If you go to oyez.org, O-Y-E-Z.org, you can hear the oral arguments, which were, to my mind, fairly interesting. I, I like listening I'm a bit bizarre that way. I like listening to oral arguments. What can I say? Yeah, I, I do too. And I, and I do think this stuff is extremely interesting because these are really hard line drawing things about, you know, you know, like, like to some extent, like plagiarism and quotation is like the third rail of creativity. But there always have to be these lines drawn, you know, between when are you just ripping somebody off and when are you really making a new work that's just... Um, you know, in some ways, you know, drawing some of its value from the way it, it, it brings to mind other works. Absolutely. The next case uh, before the Supreme Court is 303 Creative LLC uh, versus uh, Aubrey Ellenis. They call them respondents in terms of the, the language at the court. It's petitioner and respondent. So the petitioner yeah, is Lori Smith. That just means... Petitioner is whoever lost the case in the lower court and has petitioned the Supreme Court to have it reversed. And then the respondent is whoever won the case in the lower court, and they're just trying to tell the Supreme Court you shouldn't overrule that lower court case. So in this case, this is pretty interesting, too, because this is uh, based in Colorado. Lori Smith wants to expand her business to include wedding websites. However, she opposes same-sex marriage on religious grounds. She doesn't want to design websites for same-sex weddings. She wants to post a message on the website explaining her religious objections to same-sex weddings. And according to the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act, that prohibits businesses that are open to the public from discriminating, discriminating on the basis of numerous characteristics, including sexual orientation. The law defines discrimin- 
I mean, you could tell I'm reading discrimination, not only as refusing to provide goods or services, but also publishing any communication that says or implies that an individual's patronage is unwelcome because of a protected characteristic. So she could be running afoul of this state law, but I could tell you already what I think is going to happen in this case, Ken Katkin. Do you care to make any predictions? Yeah, so this is an easy one to predict what this Supreme Court is going to do. It's not, it wouldn't be such an easy case if it wasn't this Supreme Court, but because it is this Supreme Court, it's an easy case to predict. So the, the yeah, the, the Baker is going to win the, the case. And, uh, you know, there, there's a few, um, there was a similar case also from Colorado and also involving a bakery a couple of years ago. It was called Masterpiece Cake Shop. And in that case, the, the baker didn't want to make a wedding cake uh, for a same-sex marriage, and he mainly argued it on free exercise of religion grounds, and the court um, gave him a victory, but in in an extremely limited uh, reasoning that would probably not have applied to too many other cases, because most of the reasoning in the court's opinion had to do with the fact that they they thought the particular Colorado human rights uh, uh, agency, government agency that, that, that regulated this baker um, had themselves exhibited some anti-religious bias. And so, so they let the baker win, but they, you know, that wouldn't apply to other people who weren't right in front of that same commission. Um, but now I think in this case, although you mentioned religion, I think most of the arguments in this case are actually going to focus on the right of freedom of speech more than on the right of uh, free exercise of, of religion. And uh, um, I think that this um, th- this baker is going to try to argue both that their speech saying that they don't want to serve uh, gay people is part of their freedom of speech, and and also that um, the, the cakes themselves and, and what they put on the cakes would be part of their freedom of speech. That the that they're like artists and their cakes are their their canvases. Um, and my 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 sense is that the one argument about the the, the baker. Uh, being like an artist and and the cake being like their canvas, I think that argument could more or less be a winner, even with a more normal Supreme Court. Like I think most Supreme Court justices, and I think you'll get some bipartisan agreement on this court, that um, anybody who's actually making content um, can't be forced to make content that includes communicative messages that they don't agree with, that the government can't turn someone into a billboard for government uh, propaganda and, and, and make people recite that, that propaganda. Um, I, I think that's a very winning claim. Um, the one that's more tenuous is this idea that they can um, also have as part of their freedom of speech this ability to put signs up that say, like, gay is not welcome here, we don't want your business, you know, that, that kind of thing, because um, the... Uh, um, because the, the uh, the, the, the problem there is that it's not real. That's not really about speech. That's really about the conduct of who they will do business with, whose who's money they will take. It's, it's a, you know, the, the idea that of refusing to, to do business with people in a certain class, whether it's a racial group or a religious group or a sexual orientation group, simply refusing to do business with people in that group would be conduct, not speech. But the only way you can really communicate that is through speech. So there's a, you know, it's, it's almost like, you know, if you, if you filled out like your taxes and you, the whole thing was fraudulent and, you know, you were Donald Trump or something and everything you write on there was fraudulent. And then you come back and say, well, but that was just my speech. I was engaging in speech when I filled out my tax forms. And so I have freedom of speech, including freedom of speech to lie on there. You know, that wouldn't normally be seen as a freedom of speech argument because it would normally be seen as 
you're, you're not being punished for speech. You're being punished for not oh, paying your taxes. Yeah, but it, <laughs> yeah, but normal and Donald Trump have nothing to do with each other. And if he tried that, it would actually he would actually get away with it. If he tried, it would actually work. That's yeah. that's the problem okay, with that. Yeah. Uh, but I just want to point. I just want to point out. This, what I want to point out. This woman, first of all, is a graphic designer. She's not a baker. She's a graphic designer. And and what and the sign that she wants to put up is on the internet. She wants to put it on her website. You know. So does that uh, change things? If it's not a physical sign, is she able to put uh, something on her website that says that says, "By the way, we don't take business from same-sex couples." You know, I, what I'm saying, I, I pretty much agree with you that with this Supreme Court, because they're very anti-gay and they, they have anti-gay bias, you know, they're probably going to find a way to say that's her freedom of speech. But I, I think a more normal Supreme Court would not say that, because I think a more normal Supreme Court would say, well, when speech is used as part of a course of conduct, where it's really the conduct that's criminal. Let me give another example. Suppose you walk into a bank with a gun, and, and, you, say, and you hold the gun up and say, this is a stick-up, put the money in the bag, um, and then you get caught, and you argue, well, when I said those words, you know, this is a stick-up, put the money in the bag, that was speech, so that's part of my free speech, so I can't be punished for that. You know, that, that's kind of a ridiculous argument, because it's not, you're not being punished for an opinion you expressed, you're being punished for stealing the money from the bank, but words are just part of that course of conduct. This and is I, like the famous example say, of yeah. shouting fire in a crowded theater. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you can't yeah. you can't do that. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. said that. Yeah, for God's right. sakes. Um, uh, yes, um, uh, yes. In the, in the in the case of Shank versus United States, he said that. But the uh, um, the the I think I think I think it is like that. But I think it's even a little beyond that because you know in in that case. I think that's actually a harder case, because if you shout fire in a crowded theater, there's no other underlying crime other than just the words, right? But what I'm saying is, in, in these kind of examples I was giving, whether it's a bank robbery or whether it's a tax fraud or whether it's an uh, act of discrimination um, against members of a minority group and, and illegally refusing to serve them, you know, all of those things are actually conduct. It's just that words are part of the course of conduct, but it's it's the conduct that's the crime. So I, I don't think it's correct to think about those kind of things as, as speech crimes at all. Whereas the, the fire in a crowded theater thing, actually, you know, it's only the speech that's the crime. There is, there is no underlying conduct there. So that, that actually, I think, should be a closer case than some of these cases we're talking about. Hmm. Well, if you want to look up Shank versus the United States, it's S-C-H- E-N-C-K, not A-N-C-K, just, just so you know. You were quick, Chris. You looked that up right after I said uh, it. You know, I, I I did because I've looked it up before. I mean, often uh, I spend time on, like, Wikipedia just looking up stuff that I don't know about because I, I want to learn about it. Um, this is not a commentary on whether or not you can depend on Wikipedia for your accuracy, by the way. I, I'm not going to get into that, but... Uh, you know, that's where the phrase uh, clear and present danger comes from. There's an, any number of uh, things that emanated from that landmark decision that is pretty interesting if you get a chance to look it up. So uh, and it had to do with the Espionage Act at the time during uh, World War One. So there's a bit of that in it as well. But before we run out of time, I got to ask you about this Article five convention that uh, the organization I mentioned earlier 
the American Legislative Exchange Council has been on about for I don't know how many years now. They're trying to sign up 34 states because apparently under Article 5, if you can sign up two-thirds of states, you can declare a constitutional convention. And they're getting, I think they have 28 states at this point. So they're like within six states, apparently, Ken Katkin. And by they, I mean uh, the evildoers. They're within six states of declaring a constitutional convention. (laughs) I know. I mean, is this nuts? This is nuts, right? It's nuts. Yeah, well, let me first, I heard you mentioning Alec at the beginning of the show. So that organization, uh, which has been around a little while, and, you know, you read what their propaganda says, that they're a nonprofit organization of legislators. But that's a Koch brothers thing. They're totally funded by the Koch brothers. And their, their main thing that they do is they draft, like, right-wing uh, model legislation to give to right-wing state legislators so that, like, a lot of these state legislators in the right-wing states, you know, they're, they're dummies. You know, they couldn't write a statute. They don't even know what they're supposed to write a statute about. They they couldn't come up with statutory language. But the, uh, um, the, 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 so the ALEC people tell them what to legislate about and then actually hand them the legislation so that they can stand up in their state legislatures and, and introduce it. And meanwhile, the so, Federalist so kind of is, But meanwhile, the Federalist Society is telling them which uh, people should become Supreme Court justices. So they're coming at it right, from both right, sides, right? Yeah. So right. So it's it's a, it's a kind of a symbiotic relationship between those organizations. But but Alec does focus pretty much only on uh, states. So it's like state legislatures get this legislation from Alec. And so one of the things that um, they've been pushing, as you said, you know, as kind of part of their usual routine, what they always do every year of handing a bunch of right wing legislation to states so that they can have legislation to do things like attack critical race theory or attack abortion or cut, cut taxes more or whatever. Um, they, they've been handing legislation saying, oh, and call for a constitutional convention. So, so, so they, they've gotten it. I didn't know the number, but you said it was 28. They've got 28 states now that have passed legislation calling for a constitutional convention. And, uh, you know, if, if they, if they actually get one, it would be interesting. You know, it, 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 it seems to me still fairly improbable that they could both get enough states to agree to a constitutional convention and then actually at that convention produce a constitution that all those all those same states would then even actually want to ratify. But if you hypothesize that all that could theoretically happen, you know, the other states that don't want in could leave the union at that point. Like, that's actually one of the ways to break up the union. Because the new the new constitution would go into effect between the, the the states that agreed to it, not not with the, not the ones that didn't agree to it. It's just wild. And uh, by the way, I want to just say we're it's actually at nineteen states, but they're rapidly oh, signing okay. on. They are rapidly signing on. This thing has been hanging around since twenty thirteen, uh, twenty twelve, maybe. Georgia was the first state to sign on. Does that surprise you, Ken Kacken? <laughs> not, not, not that much. Uh, uh, Georgia, yeah. Georgia, and then Georgia Alaska. Be... Go ahead. Yeah. You were going to Is say. It Alaska? No, it, Alaska was second. Uh, Alaska, Florida, yeah. Alabama, Tennessee, Indiana, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Arizona, North Dakota, Texas, and Missouri. That's all between 2014 and 2017. 
Then in 2019, Arkansas, Utah, Mississippi, and now 2022, so far since January 25th, four more states, Wisconsin, Nebraska, West Virginia, and most recently South Carolina on March 29th. And so now that's obviously not 28 states. I apologize for overstating how many states there were. It's still worrying. Uh, Here's places where they've passed in one chamber but not the other, New Mexico, Iowa, South Dakota, Virginia, North Carolina, and New Hampshire. So there are a whole list of states that are considering this resolution, including mine, New Jersey. So uh, apparently, you know, more conservative politicians from the state of New Jersey think this is a good idea, too. I don't know. Does this have a shot at success? I know you said not, you know— you you sincerely doubt it, but I've sincerely doubted many things over the past twenty years, and they've come to pass. Yeah, I, I still sincerely doubt it because it would take uh, three things would have to happen. So if you're asking, you know, could they get thirty four states that agree to have a new convention? I think that's unlikely, but not impossible. I think it could happen. But then I think the things that are much more improbable than that are that the the convention would produce a, a, a document that enough of those same states, even the states that agreed to the convention, would have to agree afterwards that the document that came out of that convention they want it, is one that's better than our Constitution, so they wanted to chuck our Constitution and have that one. And I think they're, they would lose some states there because the state legislatures can authorize this convention, but I think they would have to take it back to the voters of their states to have a ratifying convention if they really wanted it. To, to chuck the United States Constitution, I think that would be tougher. And then the final thing would be they, they would have to decide if they really want to go through with it, if they somehow managed to pass it between two-thirds of the states and they, they didn't have all the states. And so that would mean breaking up the United States. And I think that's, uh, again, a, a fairly likely um, uh, uh, outcome of what would happen if they really wanted to go through with it. So uh, how would you do that? Because, you know, it's not like there's a red state and a blue state. There are purple areas. I mean, uh, I think Bill Maher pointed this out a couple of weeks ago on real time. I mean, we live amongst each other. How are you going to do that? How are you going to break up the United States again? And they and yet they talk about it like it's an actual thing. This country's become yeah, well, amazing. That's what I'm saying. It's not, I think it's, it's not an actual thing. That's well, kind of what I was saying. I'm going to take it off. I'll move it to the bottom of my worry list. How's that? <laughs> yeah. And worry about other things. Uh, now, my last yeah. question for you, Ken Keck, and you know, as you know, I reached out to you recently with a with an issue of mine where I had to take somebody to small claims court. Right. So now, yes, how did, it go? did it did it resolve? Well, that's what I want to ask you about because I, I I filed the suit. They served the summons. I found out the name of the sergeant from the sheriff's office who served the summons. Am I within my rights to call him and ask if he was wearing a body cam that day and if I can have the footage? Or do I need to make a Freedom of Information Act request? <laughs> I really want to well, see this guy be handed the, the service. I really want to see that happen. I want to see him handed the summons to come to court. Can I do that? If you, yeah, well, you know, if you want to know whether the policeman was wearing a body cam or not, that's probably easier to find out than needing to find a file a Freedom of Information Act request because some departments basically require police officers to wear body cams while they're on the job. And 
departments that don't require that, it, it doesn't really happen. So I think you could just, you know, find out about any particular jurisdiction. Um, is this a jurisdiction where the police officers are required to wear body cams? And if Interesting. They are, and you think the Internet will have that information? It might. I have to yeah, look that up. It might be on their websites, or mm -hmm. yeah, if you, yeah, it might be on the police department's own websites, or it might be something that you could just type into the internet, like "Do police in you know X town wear uh, body cams?" And, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I think I think that's knowable. You also could probably just call the department and ask them that. See, and I then, wanted to um, do that, but wouldn't it be a weird question? Some person's calling you, and by the way, does your force wear body cams? By the way, you know, just asking. Well, you know. It might seem weird, but and I don't know what size jurisdiction you're talking about, but like for most cities, if it's a city police department, they have people whose whole job is like public information officer. Eh, I so, think like, it's a, I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a rural area of Maryland. I, I, not rural, but you know, it's not, it's not Baltimore. Let's put it that way. So who knows? In Baltimore, I guarantee you they're wearing several body cams in case the first body cam fails. You know, because right. it's Baltimore, yeah. so they're wearing body cams. Yeah, because they would have been they would have been sued into that, and the, and the public generally would have been demanding that. But um, yeah, and, and that's the same in Cincinnati. Actually, I don't know if you remember this, but one time we talked on Aerial View a couple of years ago. This would have been around Memorial Day of 2020 when all the George Floyd protests were happening all over the country. Yeah, there were there were big uh, there were big George Floyd protests in Cincinnati. And about uh, 500 people got arrested and taken to jail. And uh, I, I filed Freedom of Information Act requests on the Cincinnati Police Department. And uh, I wanted to see all of that. And I got so much footage that here we are, like, more than two years later. And I haven't even been able to watch it wow. all yet. that's so wild. Hmm. Hey, by the yeah. way, before I forget, what did you think of that recent article about uh, Sam and Pete Chase in the New York Times? Uh, they wrote yeah. something about him recently. Yeah, well, Seven P. Chase was cool. I've, I've told you about him before. He yeah. was a, um, a kind of extreme uh, abolitionist and, in fact, um, somewhat of a feminist when there really were almost no men who believed in women's rights. And he, you know, he took, he, they called him the attorney general for the slaves because he, he took cases, he took civil rights cases from representing African-American people in Cincinnati, which was a pretty racist city then, as it somewhat still is. But I've, I have seen improvements in Cincinnati in the 20 years I've been living there. But, you know, when he was living there, it was a very racist city, but he represented African-Americans in civil rights well, cases. Well, so, you ought to be I'm, very I'm, proud. I'm proud, to, I'm proud to teach at a law school named after Sam P. Chase. I was going to say that. We've run out of time, but listen, go enjoy the chills, and hopefully somebody who's headed to that show tonight will buy Ken Katkin a drink. If you're going to, what the hell's the name of the venue again? At the Sleeping, uh, the sleeping Village. Sleeping Village. Sleeping yeah. Village. There it is. Thank you, Ken. I appreciate you doing this, especially from your car. Yeah, thank you. I hope it sounded okay. I, it's I, not, I know it's not optimal to do it from a car. Uh, we're all used to shitty audio ever since Serial, that podcast. Don't worry, don't worry about it. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Take care. And, uh, wow, we're just out of road. So I'm going to just remind you one more time that the Hound Howl can be heard Sunday, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, followed by Crashing the Party, a brand new one. Crashing the Party number 102. And I'll be back uh, again next Friday. This show will replay on Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Also available as podcast wherever you get your podcast.
What sort of talk is that? Modern talk? <laughs>